You're listening to a podcast from Meaning of Life TV. Hi, Massimo. Hi, Bob. How are you? I can't complain. Let me introduce this. I'm Robert Wright. This is The Right Show, available on both streaming video on the meaningoflife.tv platform and via audio podcast. You are Massimo, I want to say, Piliucci. Is that a... Yeah, that's pretty good. Is that pretty good? Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Um, and you are a professor of uh, philosophy at City College in New York. Is this true? That's correct. And you are the author of, among various books, uh, How to Be a Stoic. Uh, I think it's fair to call you a, a leader of the uh, Stoic revival, if that's the term. Are, the, are you using the term Stoic revival? No, but that's a good idea. That's, you should. That's actually, yeah, the term mostly uses modern stoicism or movement, but uh, revival, I like that. Yeah, I think I like you should idea. declare yourself the unrivaled leader of the Stoic <laughs> revival. That would be rather pretentious of me, but and therefore hey, non-Stoic. <laughs> one thing a lot of people who have achieved great things in life have in common is that they are pretentious. You may have noticed this. Yeah, I was just reading uh, for a book that I'm working on now about Alexander the Great. Hey, you know, talk talk about pretentious, right? (laughs) Not not overflowing with humility, and look where he got. He he got killed. But anyway, um, so uh, today we're not going to talk about stoicism. No, we're going to talk about whether evolution could have a higher purpose. That's one way of putting it. Uh, maybe we'll get to the question of whether there's any evidence that it does, but that would, I guess, presume that you accept the idea that it could, and I'm not sure you accept that idea. The, the way this started is I, I wrote a piece with the New York Times years ago called Could Evolution Have a Higher Purpose? And I I started it with, uh, well, let me just say, first of all, you replied to that uh, with a skeptical piece and so before right. I, I kind of get into what, uh, how I tried to illustrate the question in that New York Times piece, why, why don't you tell us how, how skeptical are you of the idea that evolution, that there could be some larger purpose unfolding through evolution? Yeah. Through evolution so, by natural selection, just, just kind of conventional evolution, not intel, we're not talking about intelligent design, at least right. I don't mean to be. We're not talking about spooky immaterial forces guiding evolution. Do you accept my claim that it could be that just nuts and bolts, evolution by natural selection could in some sense be serving a larger purpose. Right. So yes and no. And here's here's the thing. So as you know, my background before I moved to philosophy, actually, my background was in, in evolutionary biology, particularly gene environment interactions. And it depends on what you mean. Because it's not it's not reasonable for me to, or for any scientist, I think, to reject a logical possibility a priori, right? What, what you're talking is a logical possibility. I mean, it's, it's certainly, there are, there are logical scenarios under which, sure, that could, that could be the case. So the question really comes down to evidence, right? Do we have any reasons other than the, the, the possibility of a logical scenario to, uh, entertain seriously the notion that evolution might have an higher purpose? And, if you put it that way, in terms of empirical evidence, then I tend to be very skeptical. But, you know, I'm open to be convinced otherwise, and, uh, and that's why we're having this discussion, <laughs> I suppose. Okay. Well, maybe we should dwell for a little while on the, on the very question of whether it's even logically possible that evolution could have a purpose, because I think 
some people do get hung up there. Yeah. The the illustration I used in the New York Times piece, you know, I I dug up some footage of me interviewing William Hamilton in the 1990s. Now, right. Hamilton, who's no longer alive, was, I think you'd agree, one of the biggest names of the 20th century in evolutionary biology. Oh, yes, easily. The, the name most prominently associated with kin selection, which is the dynamic by which we think altruism among close relatives right. uh, evolved. Uh, very, uh, he's very creative, interesting guy. And I was videoing him. And in fact, the guy with me doing it was the uh, now famous uh, documentary maker, Alex Gibney. Um, and I mean, nothing ever came of this footage in, in the way of an actual documentary. Uh, I think Alex wisely uh, figured the further he w- away he was from me, the more likely he'd be to actually get documentaries <laughs> finished. But the, um, but, but Hamilton, uh, he went off on this thing. I mean, I think I said, do you, have you ever thought about the possibility that evolution has a purpose or something? And he didn't need any more prompting. You know, mm-hmm. he, he, uh, um, and I think maybe I used the, term transcendental purpose i'm not sure but he said you know it's funny i've often entertained the idea kind of half jokingly it's a kind but that we're a zoo we on planet earth are a zoo uh for the amusement of extraterrestrials the idea seemed to be they had come down and planted the seed of natural selection you know this primordial whatever it was strand of rna dna whatever that then evolves into the whole ecosystem now, in his scenario, he wondered, like, you know, maybe they intervene every once in a while, but these extraterrestrials, and, and, and that could explain miracles or something. Well, let's forget that part. Just for purposes of the thought experiment, let's assume that these extraterrestrials are more analogous to uh, a deistic kind of god, the kind of god conceived by deus. In other words, uh, a, a, an intelligent being that sets the thing in motion and then keeps its hands off. Right. And the, right. the point I was making was... We can't rule out that that could be true, and if it's true, then evolution by natural selection would have a larger purpose. In other words, there's something the aliens had in mind. They, 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 whether they wanted a zoo or whatever else, there was something that uh, natural selection was kind of designed to unfold toward. Okay, so mm-hmm. and and I said, look, it's William Hamilton. He's obviously talking about nuts and bolts, materialistic natural selection. Right. So, so there you go. There could be an evolution with a purpose that's just regular materialist evolution. Correct. And so that scenario, which by the way is an episode of Star Trek: The Next Generation, it's based on that, <laughs> on that kind of scenario. And it's also, as you probably know, a scenario that has been often actually. Well, maybe not often, but sometimes it has actually been um, invoked as an explanation for uh, why we don't have contact with, we haven't had contact with extraterrestrial intelligence yet, even though they allegedly are all over the place. And, you know, the, the zoo scenario is one of the possibilities, it's like, you know, with, with this kind of like, ongoing experiment, and they don't want to mess around with the, exper- with the ongoing experiment. Now, and in fact, we don't even need to talk about gods or deism in that context. I mean, it's just a very advanced civilization. Mm-hmm. It's true that Arthur C. Clarke famously said that a sufficiently advanced civilization will look like like a, a deity to us. Uh, fine, but but really, we're not talking about anything supernatural. We're, we're just talking about something that could happen. And so that's what I meant when I said, uh, you know, if you ter- if you asking me in terms of logical possibility, I would say, yeah, sure, that it could be. 
However, at least from where I sit at the moment, I see no reason whatsoever to actually entertain the possibility uh, as a matter of, you know, scientific uh, hypothesis that I can do something about because I don't see any evidence of that sort of, mm-hmm. uh, of scenario being actually the case. And one of the reasons I... I insist on this difference between, of course, the logical possibility, the logical scenarios on the one hand and so the empirical scientific ones on the other is because ever since I moved into philosophy, one of the things that occasionally irritates me is these um, a lot of metaphysicians uh, who seem to think, not all of them, but a lot of metaphysicians who seem to think that just because something is conceivable, in other words, it's kind of logically consistent, um, therefore, it's, you know, it's something that we should really seriously entertain and talk about. For instance, David Chalmers and his famous uh, zombies when it comes to the nature of consciousness. And, and I want to say no, because the number of things that are conceivable is literally infinite. It's like you, you could conceive an infinite number of things. I mean, mm-hmm. if you're talking about anything that is logically consistent, well, the number of things that are logically consistent is essentially infinite. And we're never going to get anywhere if we're going to start talking about an infinite number of possibilities. That is the major difference between, you know, speculation on the one hand and science on the other. So it was interesting to see that in, in your in your article that Hamilton actually entertained that possibility. He did say in that interview that, uh, he was half joking. Now I wonder how much of a half joke that actually was. I mean, we, we all occasionally get into that kind of mood where we, we you know, we speculate and we, we, yeah. we, end, we entertain these kind of possibilities. I mean, another one that I think you mentioned in that article, uh, and that actually has been taken somewhat seriously by some philosophers re- recently is the simulation hypothesis, right? Right. Very closely that, related to this question, right. I think. Right. In that case, we're really talking about something that is even closer to a god because we're talking about a, a simulator or a race of simulators that are for all effective purposes outside of our universe. I mean, at least mm-hmm. the extraterrestrials that you mentioned earlier mm-hmm. are part of our you know, physical universe. The simulators are actually building this entire universe, The, the uh, what we call the laws of nature are, in fact, the parameters of the simulation and all that sort of stuff. Now, again, is it a logical possibility? Sure. Meaning that it doesn't entail any logical contradiction. That scenario doesn't entail any logical contradiction, but that's a very low bar. A lot of stuff doesn't, in, doesn't entail logical contradictions. You know, do I have any reason, however, to believe that we actually live in a simulation? Pache, yeah. my colleague, uh, Nick Bostrom. No, I don't think so. Simply because there is no empirical evidence that that is the case. Yeah, the um, I, I agree that the fact that it's a logical possibility is 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 not the highest bar you'd have to pass to take the uh, hypothesis really seriously. On the other hand, the the reason I wanted to dwell on it is because a lot of people don't realize seem not to realize it is a logical possibility. In other words, if you say yeah. I think maybe evolution, there's some larger purpose unfolding through evolution, they say. But I thought you were a Dar- Darwinian. You wrote, and they they think there's like an inherent contradiction. There's not. In fact, Darwin, I don't think Darwin in the end uh, did believe in a god, and maybe it was more for public relations purposes that he, you know, was willing to play around with hypotheses, uh, with scenarios suggested by theologians of the day who were trying to reconcile Darwinism with theology who talked about a creator who had created life by, you know, in the way Hamilton's talking about. So it, it is it is a logical possibility. We agree on that. But before we get into the question of whether there's evidence of it or what, what evidence would look like, 
I do think there are a lot of things that are not readily testable scientific hypotheses that are worth talking about, uh, especially, you know, the more profound uh, questions like like free will. I, I, you know, that's important. You're not going to come up, I don't think, with a definitive scientific test of the hypothesis of free will. And I would say the same thing about various um, theories about what consciousness is. I, th- I think that by its nature uh, is not susceptible to uh, scientific evaluation in the way that a lot of hypotheses are. I still think they're worth talking about. Yeah. So, but let me qualify that from, from my perspective. So, um, I agree, contra some of my science colleagues, for instance, that, yeah, there are questions that are not, that can't be settled by scientific evidence, either cannot be settled now by scientific evidence, uh, or maybe even in principle, uh, can be settled by scientific evidence. So, so I'm not what sometimes, uh, I don't endorse the position that sometimes is referred to as scientistic. Uh, you know, or scientism, that these, these notion that the only reason, the only meaningful questions are questions that can be answered scientifically. However, the, the big caveat that I put there, and this, this look may simply be a reflection of the, of my dual career, you know, as a scientist on the one hand and a philosopher on the other hand. So I am attracted both to the empirical evidence, obviously, as a scientist, but also to the, you know, the more speculative aspect. That's why I moved to philosophy. However, I want to, to, to keep those two in, Talking to each other in, in, you know, in, in visual distance from each other. There is a, um, there was an influential philosopher of the middle part of the 20th century, W.V.O. Quine, who famously said that, uh, we want to maintain our ontologies as sparse as possible. In other words, we don't want to come up with a number of possible scenarios for which there is no particular reason to believe in. Just keep it as simple as possible. Entertain all the speculations you want, but then at the end of the day, remain as much in contact. Metaphysics ought to remain as much in, in, in contact with science as possible. For instance, let me take your, your uh, own example of free will. I am what people call a con- compatibilist about free will, right? Uh, which is the dominant position in philosophy now, nowadays. Sad, sadly, yes, but go yeah, ahead. I know. <laughs> well, let's not get there. It's <laughs> a whole different discussion. We but should reason, say it's the idea that yeah. free will and determinism are actually compatible. Who knew? Correct. Um, but but uh, isn't, is, is that a fair way to summarize that's what it fair, means? That's, that's okay. right. Depending, because because it hinges, of course, on, a, on how exactly you conceive free will, right? Uh, compatibilists agree with hard determinists that free will doesn't mean th- that free will is actually a misnomer, that we shouldn't be talking about free will. Should be talking about volition, you know, the ability of human beings to make decisions, because there's nothing free about it, right? Uh, it's not dis- disconnected from the laws of, of nature. Now, I think it's fair to say that the difference between compatibilism and hard determinism is not one of substance. It's, it's one of how you think about human decision making. I agree. Because otherwise, the facts are the same. Now, on the other hand, the position that I think we both reject pretty pretty clearly is the uh, libertarian position, and I'm not talking about the, the politics. I, I'm actually an agnostic on free will. I, I, I don't reject it. I just think it's uh, beyond... Uh, reckoning so far as I okay. can tell. Well, but. then let me then, then let me say that I actually do reject the libertarian position. Again, not the political one, right. although but, I have problems there free will well. in the traditional sense that, right. that, you, that your volition is in some sense not entirely bound by the laws of physics, of science, and so Correct. on. That, that, that it's, it truly 
you know, it is not inevitable what you will do tomorrow. And you could not predict it even if you knew everything, even if you were this, you know, omniscient uh, being that knew everything about all causal forces at play, you could still not predict it even in principle. Correct. So now why do I reject libertarian free will? Because I want to keep my my ontological positions, my metaphysical position, and free will is certainly is a metaphysical question, as close as possible to the empirical science. And the libertarian has to make this gigantic leap at, and saying that somehow there are exceptions to the laws of cause and effect. And while another term for those exceptions are miracles, and I don't believe in miracles. And the reason I don't believe in miracles, again, is because it's a tall order. It's, a, it's what Cal Sagan would call an extraordinary claim, and therefore it requires extraordinary evidence, and I see no evidence of it. So, while I agree with you, the only reason I brought this, all this thing up is because on the one hand, I agree with you that there certain are questions that cannot be settled by the empirical evidence as it stands, and perhaps even as it will stand in the, in the future. However, I am, I guess my skepticism is proportional to how far I see a particular idea going from the available empirical evidence. In other words, philosophy, for good philosophy, I think, has to be informed and tethered to some extent by good science. Otherwise, we're just going to talk about whatever we want to talk about, but, but with no, with no limitations, with no, no way to tell anything that might possibly be true from, from anything, from something that is an entire flight of fancy. Yeah. I mean, at the same time, uh, you know, to return to the question of consciousness, in other words, the fact that it is like something to be alive, the fact that there is subjective experience, um, that seems to me a question that is, on the one hand, obviously important. I mean, after all, the reason we can feel pleasure and pain and joy and everything else is, I would say, the reason life has meaning. I mean, to get back to the zombie thought experiment, if you imagine beings that behaved exactly like us had no interior life, you'd say, well... That's not a meaningful life, probably, right? And it doesn't even right. matter much if you kill one of them because they're not capable of uh, experience. Anyway, so on the one hand, it's a very important question. But on the other hand, it seems to me almost inherently not amenable ultimately to scientific analysis because subjective experience cannot be observed by more than one being. And uh, any any whenever there's going to be a truly scientific test of a hypothesis, the evidence generated by the test has to be publicly observable. There has to be more than one person who can look at the evidence. You know, this is the temperature that was reached, or this is what the molecule looked like at the end of the experiment or whatever. Whereas with subjective experience, no one but me can share my subjective experience. So there is some sense in which... uh I don't know if you want to call it data, but but but, but there's <laughs> that experience. But there's some sense in which the data is not publicly observable, so it can't it it, it can't be. Uh, yeah, that that is the argument, but I don't. Sure, I'm not sure that I buy it. I mean, not that we want to necessarily make this this conversation all about consciousness and stuff, but uh, so like for one thing, there is such a thing as self-reported you know, uh, experience, which we accept in other areas of, of psychological research. You know, there is research, for instance, on happiness, and that is research on self-reported happiness, not on obj- of things that you can measure with, you know, like atoms and, and molecules. We accept it because it's the best we've got. Well, right. I agree. I, I not, agree. Not that, because it's not flawed and not I, because it is happiness. 
com- completely agree. Uh, so what we do, what psychologists do, is they uh, they hypothesize that there is a, a quantity underlying these these subjective reports that correlate that quantity correlate with these reports, and they're trying to sort of triangulate. Basically, what they're assuming an hidden variable, essentially, and that that's a standard way of doing things in not only actually in psychology and in sociology, but even in certain areas of, of biology, like in ecology, uh, the, the same mm-hmm. tools are used. Uh, you know, uh, uh, so so we do that kind of stuff. Now, is it ideal? Absolutely not. Um, but it is one way to proceed. And to me, uh, to my way of looking at things, we've learned a lot more about consciousness over the last twenty or thirty years because of neuroscience and cognitive science than than because of any speculation that has come out of of metaphysics. What have we What have we learned? I mean, we've learned that. Subjective experiences seem very closely correlated with brain states, but aside from that, what have we learned? Well, that's a huge, that's a huge one. But not only because I could have told you that. I mean, well, but you couldn't have told me which brain states. You couldn't have. What told does that me, matter for philosophical purposes? For philosophical purposes, it doesn't matter. But it matters if you want to turn sci- uh, the study of consciousness into a scientific one, right? I mean, what we're talking about here is: Are we going to have a mechanistic explanation of? The process, the process of consciousness, and you know, the answer I think is going to be if if it's going to be yes, if it's going to be positive, and certainly nobody can say at this point it's going to it's not going to come up from the zombies. It's going to come up with the from the fMRI scans. It's going to come up from from all of the studies that that investigate the effect of different chemicals, for instance, on degrees of consciousness. There's there's quite a lot there that gets. Pretty much shoved aside by by metaphysicians who work on consciousness. But, but well, but, you know. Well, actually, let me let me let me quickly make a connection between this and the um, the, the the question of purpose and evolution, which is, I, I think, the point of the zombie thought experiment. And actually, there was a version of it in my 1988 book, uh, Three Scientists and Their Gods. It's the same. It's the same thing, uh, I think that Chalmers is talking about. And, 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 and basically I'm making the point that, um, you know, if consciousness is, if subjective experience is as is commonly conceived, as, as many people believe, right. uh, and particularly people of a scientific orientation, I think their common sense kind of notion of what subjective experience is, is as a kind of epiphenomenon of physical Processes, in other words, the physical processes kind of generate the subjective states. Uh, they influence the subjective states, but are not in turn influenced by them. If they were influenced by them, you would have Cartesian dualism, which is pretty widely rejected by people of a scientific orientation. And the point of the zombie thought experiment is that um, let's suppose that this is the correct view of of. Uh, of uh, subjective experience that, um, you know, it, it's just a kind of a shadow cast by physical processes that doesn't in turn um, influence them. Well, if that's the case, then, it, then you know, you have to understand, then it has no function, right? And, and the illustration of that is these so-called zombies, which which don't have subjective experience in this thought experiment, could behave exactly as we behave. There could be right. a planet full of people behaving as we behave. Because remember, right. even what we're doing now, talking, is a, it's a fi- communication is a physical can be described as a physical process. The physical sound waves go in my ear. They trigger right. a bunch of stuff that leads to sound waves coming out of my mouth. You can describe the whole system in physical terms. So, in principle, if subjective experience is 
kind of merely epiphenomenal, then it has then then what is it for? It has no function. Right, but I reject the idea that that, that uh, consciousness is epiphenomenal, and I reject the idea that it doesn't have a function. Um, for instance, uh, one very common kind of conscious experience is the experience of pain, and the hell that pain doesn't have causal uh, you know effects. Of course it does, because well, wait, wait, I feel wait, wait, wait. pain. Right. I feel no. pain and I react to it and I do something. I, 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 oh, sure. right? but, I but, identify but, but wait, an area. Yeah. But wait, if you were a true materialist, and certainly a lot of behavioral scientists would say to you, sure, it feels to you as if the feeling is what made your hand react, but we can show you that what's, quote, really going on is that there are these physical sensors at the end of your fingertips and they feel the, fl- you know, the flame triggers something in them that, that that starts a chain of physical reaction that goes up here, up your arm, and induces withdrawal. But that, that's the point of the zombie experience, is that if you're a serious materialist and behavioral scientist, I mean, the, the zombie thought experiment, then, then, um, then uh, the question, you know, and you believe that we can explain all of human behavior in these physical terms, including withdrawing your hand from a burning flame, then the pain is superfluous functionally. That's the point. Now, you may say it's not, but if you're saying it's not, then you're heading into some, what these days is some pretty rare territory, I think, in terms of what you're saying consciousness is. I don't think is. so. Any, any biologist would tell you that that's, there's nothing bizarre about, uh, about this at all. Pain is highly adaptive. Absolutely. Right? I mean, and no, it's I not just human that. beings. I get that right. that's a way of talking about it, but. What do you mean? I, I mean, you can, I mean, the point is you can describe the process at either of the two levels. You can say he withdrew his hand because he felt the pain. That's the way it felt to him. Or you can say, look, we have a completely satisfactory explanation of why he withdrew his hand without talking about the pain but through the physical processes. But we do not. That's the thing. Well, well in we principle, have... we do. Many, many scientists believe that in principle, you could do that. And, and, and you talk about advances in science. We're getting better and better at doing it. We understand more and more about how the, the physical nerves work and signals go up and down the arm. Yes, we do. And all of that is very interesting. But no, I don't know any biologist would actually agree with that characterization. The, the uh, fact of the matter is what you're, what you're talking there is two different levels of description, okay, uh, which are not incompatible at all. Uh, the, the phenomenological level of description is the one in which, at the level of which, you know, the behavioral ecologist, for instance, works. Uh, doesn't have to know anything about, at all, about the molecular uh, structure of what's going on or the molecular processes. Ecology, a lot of ecology and all of evolutionary biology is done without completely ignoring, taking the, the molecular part as a black box. And vice versa, a lot of molecular biology is done without, I mean, any, any uh, thought whatsoever for the higher level consequences of those processes. What we want, ideally, however, is bridge Bridges between these these levels mm-hmm. of analysis. I mean, what what biology has been doing for for the last couple of decades is trying painfully and slowly to bridge the, the, that kind of gap. But it's pretty unanimously, I think, understood among evolutionary biologists that pain is highly adaptive. No, I, I have written the right? same thing. I've written the same thing, but but it's really just a simplified way of talking. I, I mean. You, you know, I, 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 I and I don't you, agree. You never that experienced every, sexual pain. I mean, you, I'm sure you have experienced that. Of course, that. of course. Right. So, what, so what do you mean? Is a way of talking? It's there is an experience there, right? I, I mean, as you said, there are two parallel things going on when mm-hmm. someone withdraws their hand from a flame. Mm-hmm. There is a sheerly physical description of the process, 
And I think many people who are in the business of studying the physical part would say, in principle, they can come up with a completely satisfactory explanation of why the person withdrew the hand just by describing the physical stuff. Yes, of course. Okay, then then the subjective experience is, from an explanatory standpoint, from their point of view, superfluous. It's not. But they needed. haven't gotten there. That's what I'm saying. Is they have, they're not even close to that. They're getting, they're hin- hinching there. You don't think they'll get there. there then? You don't think they'll no, get they there? They might. They might. I hope well, they okay, do. Okay, let's suppose they, they do. do. Then would you agree that the subjective experience is, from their point of view, superfluous? No, at, I I would simply as an say explanation. No, I would simply say that the behavioral explanation is complementary and you and useful in different in different contexts from the one in which the molecular neurobiologist is working. I mean, uh, again, I, I think it's a given in any uh, introductory text in evolutionary biology that two things, two kinds of subjective experience are fundamental in the animal world, and they're not found as far as we can tell in plants, and that's pleasure and pain. I've written just, this myself in my right. most recent book on Buddhism and in The Moral Animal on Evolutionary Psychology. I understand why that's much, a much faster way of talking. I mean, it's, it's a way of helping people understand why they have these feelings in a certain sense. It's not an explanation of why subjective experience exists, period. I think it is. I think it's an explanation of why it exists from an evolutionary perspective. What it is not is a mechanistic explanation of how it exists. How is it possible? That's the bit that we're missing. We don't know how all those molecules you're talking about generate the subjective experience. That is true. That's, that's the, that's the big lacuna that we have at the moment. But well, that is a why. Yeah. Uh, I think that we have those experiences because those experiences allow us to navigate better the world. We survive better as a result. That's, you that's my, you that's, can talk that way in a use, and it's useful to talk that way. I agree with that. But I, but I, but anyway, I won't keep going, going over and over. <laughs> the, the question of how physical stuff might generate subjective experience is, is I think what, what the philosopher Colin again called the water into wine problem. And, and his view, I think, is kind of like mine, which is that I wouldn't be too optimistic about our capacity. To understand that as human beings, I, I don't know why you'd think we're, we that animals that that evolved by natural selection are capable of understanding everything about the universe they're born into. I don't. After all, that's I, not what natural selection. Well, here we get back to the question: What did right? But wait a minute. But I don't. Wait a minute, because I never said, and I definitely did not mean to imply that I think that any question, any interesting question comes up to the human mind, it's going to have a solution and that solution is going to be empirical. Not at all. I'm perfectly, for instance, I can give you an example of a question that I think it will never be answered by science, the origin of life on earth. And that's not because it's particularly difficult necessarily. It's just we don't have enough information. We might even be able to recreate life under artificial conditions. Yeah. But we're not going to find out how life originated specifically on Earth four billion years ago for the simple reason that we don't really have anything to go by. We don't, we're not even sure of the chemical constitution of the Earth's atmosphere at the time, let alone anything else. There's no fossil record. There's, there's nothing. So if I were to bet, that's a fairly straightforward question. That right. is not going to get an answer scientifically. No, However, but I would say the answer, it's an answer we might well be capable of understanding if we sure. had enough evidence. Sure. And, 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 I, I and, can and imagine, it's not so clear to me that, 
that questions of consciousness and free will were 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 uh, especially consciousness were really capable no, of understanding. No, I agree. It's not it's, clear to me. I agree. It's not clear to anybody, and anybody that says we're definitely going to uh, going to figure it out is a fool. However, you're asking me how is it possible that a being that evolved by natural selection to solve survival problems, you know, in the Pleistocene in the savanna. Is capable of solving potentially these kind of problems. I would respond to you that this same kind of being has been able to figure out the origin of the damn universe. Right. Uh, you know. So I mean, and so, certainly, certainly, what that wasn't a result of natural selection. It's not a natural selection. No, it, uh, it, you know, prepared for that kind of stuff. It is amazing what we're capable of. Given, right. and this has led to a certain amount of skepticism about whether natural selection is an adequate explanation. To some people, we seem a lot smarter than. You'd need to be to to for your you know to be a product of natural selection, but um, last uh, I'll quit talking about this after this statement. But it's true <laughs> that scientists science has uncovered a huge amount. We understand a huge amount as a result of science, right? But all of science, all of that science, all of that physics has been about the physical world, right? It's been about data that are publicly observable. It's like the background sure. radiation of the universe, you know, no one scientist has privileged access to that. You show them the data, they can all look at it. That's not true of subjective experience. That's I'll quit saying that, but it is qualitatively different. Yeah, I, I think it, I, don't, I guess we have to disagree on that one. Let me make one comment about the uh, problem that I have with the zombies, since this has been brought up several times. So, the, the, as you know, the, the whole the whole point of the thought experiment of the zombies it, is that it is conceivable that there might be creatures out there like you and me that behave like we're behaving, with the talk, that that react and that scream and all that sort of stuff, and yet there is nothing going on in there. Right? There's mm-hmm. no no actual conscious phenomenal experience mm-hmm. whatsoever. So Chalmers says this is conceivable, and I say so what because. Uh, being conceivable is even lower than, than a lower standard than logical consistency. There are things that are logically inconsistent that we have conceived. For instance, in the past, for like 2000 years, people conceived that there was going to be a solution to the problem of the, of squaring the circle. Turns out there isn't one. It's logically impossible. So conceivability is such a low standard. It's like, sure. Anything is conceivable, literally. Anything you can think about is conceivable, including things that not only couldn't exist physically, right? And I think that zombies couldn't exist physically in this universe. Um, but even things that couldn't exist logically or mathematically, you, could, you can conceive of those things. So conceivability tells you pretty much nothing. It sounds really interesting. It sounds really deep. But it tells you actually nothing about how the world works. It only tells you something about how your mind works in yeah. terms of, you know, imagining things. Yeah. And, and I mean, I should say, I think Chalmers puts that to slightly different use than I had put it to in my book. For my money, the point was that to point out to people who have an epiphenomenal view of consciousness, that is, they think subjective experience is kind of the shadow cast by physical stuff. It is a product of the physical stuff. It's influenced by the physical stuff, but exerts no influence itself on physical stuff. Right. For my money, the purpose of the thought experiment is to point out to them that then what they are saying is that subjective experience is functionally superfluous, has no function, period. That's the point of the thought experiment. From my point of view, it's useful for that narrow purpose. And and then uh, you might you might 
having established that point, do more things with that, which ultimately, I would say, is not totally irrelevant to the question of whether evolution could have a purpose. On the other hand, I think we should make a decision at this point. <laughs> having having failed to talk about what we set out to talk about, should we just give up and spend 20 minutes uh, <laughs> freelancing? Or should we maybe revisit... Uh, well, you, you would host, ask, my friend. It's up to you. <laughs> you, would, you would ask, what would evidence um, yes. a, a purpose look like? Right. Uh, I don't think I'll get into what I've been hinting at, which is that there's a sense in which eh, questions of about consciousness could be brought into that, uh, the, the consideration of what constitutes evidence of purpose, whether the existence of consciousness constitutes evidence of purpose. Let's leave that mm-hmm. aside. I would say that um, one thing you would expect, well, there's a couple of things. Uh, where should we go? L- let me, let me first, maybe we should, uh, well, one thing well, okay. that you do, one thing you, do you might expect up. of any purpose yeah. of system yeah. is that it tends to go somewhere. Sure. <laughs> I mean, it, it in some sense has a direction. I mean, right. a thermostat carries the temperature toward the setting that the thermostat is at, for right. example. Um, the, uh, you know, goal-oriented systems move in some sense toward a goal. Right. So if, you're, if your hypothesis were that the purpose of evolution was to create life intelligent enough uh, uh well, at least as intelligent as us, a, a, a life that could launch a second kind of evolution, technological evolution, cultural evolution more broadly, which which then could do some other things that we needn't get into. But suppose that's suppose that's the goal, or suppose that's at least a a goal subordinate to the larger goal. Suppose that uh, the person who designed the simulation, or the alien that tinkered with the base pairs in designing. In, in setting natural selection in motion, wanted intelligent life uh, to transpire, and then that is at least w- either the goal or the first or one in a series of goals or something. Well, right. if that's the hypothesis, then it would help to be able to argue that natural selection was likely to produce intelligent life. That's not an easy argument to settle, but it's something you can argue about, right? It's like you can adduce yeah. evidence. Yeah, you can argue about it. There's a couple of of reasons for skepticism, I guess, from from my perspective. Um, actually, three, I guess. Number one, you can actually come up with examples of systems that change in a determinate direction over time, and they and and I don't think we would think of those systems as intelligently designed or having a purpose. For instance, beginning with the universe itself, mm-hmm. uh, it goes toward higher and higher entropy, and yet. You know, the, that directionality is pretty, pretty well established. It's, it's been going on for 12, 13 billion years. It probably will go on until the end of, you know, the, the terminal death of the universe. And yet I doubt that anybody would seriously say, Oh yeah, there's, there's a purpose because, you know, that you can evince from, mm-hmm. from that. Right. So that's one kind of objection. That is, yes, I would agree with you that, uh, proposive systems tend to, toward certain goals, but, Unfortunately, we can also see a lot of things that appear to be goals and they're not actually goals at all. Mm-hmm. 
the second type of objection is that we actually have, you know, the, the, the obvious things that has happened on the biosphere, on the human bio, on the, sorry, the, the, the earth biosphere is that it has increased complexity. Uh, so you could say, well, that may, maybe that's the purpose or maybe that is evidence of purpose. However, there is also a very straightforward argument that, well, of course it evolved uh, toward greater complexity because it had to start simple. It had to start the simplest possible living organism, whatever that turned out to be. And so mm-hmm. there was nowhere to go there other than more complex. It's more, it's, it's like a, the analogy here would be the, that of a random walk starting in a particular uh, point, right? Mm-hmm. Um, if you start a, po- a random walk in a particular point, you're not likely, you're actually likely to go into a certain direction, what appears to be a certain direction, but that's actually entirely random. It's not, it's not because there is any purpose behind the, the whole thing. So increased complexity kind of had to happen once you start in competition uh, within, within the biosphere. And that's all, let's not forget that we're looking at it from the point of view, we're looking at the question from the point of view of highly complex organisms ourselves, and we think that we're so special and so cool, and, you know, to some extent we are. Hey, hey Massimo, I have news for you. We yeah. are. We are. To some extent we are. But the fact remains that for the overwhelming majority of life on Earth, there were no complex life life forms. There were only bacteria. And the fact also remains that bacteria still today are by far the most successful living organism on the planet in terms well, of biomass. Aren't all organisms equally successful? They all reproduce. Well, if you're talking about in terms of biomass, um, you know, bacteria way mm-hmm. over, overwhelm every, every, anything else. You give me a choice between a brain and biomass and I'll take a brain, but you, may, yeah, you, but can, that's you can choose you whatever you want. <laughs> so, uh, look, I, I'm not saying that there's nothing special as in unusual about human beings. Absolutely. And of course, to us, that's very precious. But to make that into, you know, the whole shebang was set up so that we could come about, come by, it's like, eh. Also, there's no guarantee. We don't, we have no, no idea whether the evolution of, uh, I, I don't even want to say these, the, the, the human species, but even an intelligent, complex intelligent species was necessarily, uh, you know, in, into the cards. I mean, we don't, right. unfortunately, we have an experiment of, you know, a sample size of n equal one, right? Now, the moment in uh, which not, we. Not exactly, but go ahead. Well, <laughs> I mean, we, only, I know, have, we well, only have one ecosystem that evolved in our experience. Right. That's yes, true. That's what I mean. That's what I mean. And so now, should we in the distant future discover different ecosystems? And it turns out that guess what? Every time you find an ecosystem, uh, you know, you, you also find after a certain period of time, intelligent, complex life forms. Then I'm going to start to say, all right, then there is something that might be inevitable. But even mm-hmm. inevitable doesn't mean again, still proposing. Mm-hmm. Right okay. now, as you probably know, there is a distinction that um, philosophers make uh, that might be helpful in this discussion, and that is between teleonomy and teleology. Right. Yeah, yeah. Go ahead and get into that. I, I wondered if we should get into that. In other words, um, the, uh, teleonomy. In other words, biologists are comfortable saying yes, animals have goal orientation. Right. They refer to that as teleonomy. Correct. Whereas they want to say that, but if there's something that's designed like a computer, uh, designed to do something, because it was designed by an intelligent being, they want to use a different term for that, even though both have functionality and goal orientation, right? They they want to call that teleology, is that... Teleology, and the, the, yeah. the reason for that choice first is, is important, for, for that word is important, First of all, it's the word that Aristotle used, 
but but he used it for a particular reason. Teleolo- tele- teleology has logos in the into the root, so it, it has intelligence, right? It mm-hmm. has some kind of what teleonomy uh, refers to a mechanistic process. Right. So, yes, biologists have absolutely no problem saying, yes, of course, the human eye, let's say, has a purpose, meaning it has a function that has been shaped by a natural yeah. process, you know, of natural selection. Right. Um, but it's not teleological because if you're, ta- if you're saying it was teleological, then you're saying essentially it was intelligently designed, not necessarily by a god. Uh, I, we agreed before that, uh, you know, at the beginning of this discussion, that it's certainly conceivable that we are, you know, it is a logical possibility that we actually are the result of an experiment made, uh, mm-hmm. you know, started out by uh, intelligent extraterrestrials, in which case, however, we will, we would be talking about intelligent design, not, not divine intelligent design, yeah, but intelligent I mean, design nonetheless. I'm almost reluctant to use that term because it's become so associated with a particular I know, it's loaded. non-Darwinian <laughs> uh, view of evolution. But um, the... the uh, but let me say, I, I, I want to take this opportunity to say that in my view, okay, so first of all, <clears throat> you know, some philosophers are more finicky than others about how they use the word purpose. Like sure. Dan Dennett, who certainly doesn't agree with me about all this stuff, does agree you can talk about animals as having purposes. Right. To get genes into the next generation, such subordinate purposes as eating which facilitates getting genes in the next generation. He's happy to talk that way, even though, uh, so far as we know, you know, the animals were just produced by natural selection, not by a conscious designer. Right. Um, other, yeah, people are, other people are uncomfortable with using the word purpose to describe a goal-oriented system that's not produced by a conscious designer. Correct. What, I now, fall in the second category. I'm not comfortable. You, you do, and that's why yeah. you want to distinguish between teleology and teleonomy, which, which is okay. It's it's a question of nomenclature. What I do sometimes is say that, um, you know, when we talk about animals having purposes, I would put purpose in quotation marks. Sure. Because it's kind of an analogy, to, you know. But the point is that, in principle, Systems, physical systems can have goal orientation and what it's fair to call functionality, either as a result of being, uh, hands-on designed by an intelligent being, like a, like a, a computer, a clock, right. or, and the only example we have of this, I guess, is, is natural selection, but, or, right. as a result of a blind uh, kind of uh, process of design, uh, through okay, so 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 we yes. agree on that. And, and those, what those are the to, only two categories that we recognize? Because if are. you go outside of that, then we're talking theology. And 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 what I want to say, uh, one thing I want to just say in that context, and I, and I'm not sure, having read your uh, reply to my New York Times piece, um, exactly how open to this you are, skeptical of it, or how much you do or don't like the language. In principle, it is possible. Uh, if, if if there is, in some sense, a larger purpose unfolding through evolution, it could be purpose in quotes. In other words, it's logically possible, which I know doesn't count much uh, with you, but <laughs> it's logically possible <laughs> that uh, natural selection could itself be an algorithm that was designed by a kind of a blind process, a kind of meta-natural selection. And, and the example of this I've used is if you take Lee Smolin's uh, idea of cosmological natural selection, where universes actually give birth to other universes, it, it's of right. course very conjectural, even even uh, by his own acknowledgement. Um, 
But he would say maybe that explains why there's so many black holes. Maybe uh, universes give birth through black holes. So through this process of, of selection, universes with lots of black holes are, are favored, just as highly fertile organisms are favored through natural selection. Yeah. Um, you can tweak that, and I've talked to him about this, and I've talked to people who've done the tweaking. You can tweak that scenario to come up with, again, super conjectural, but a scenario where intelligent life in the universe is facilitates the replication of the universe. Here we're getting right. very Star Trekky, But if that were the case, then you could imagine natural selection among universes uh, tending to favor universes that were likely to produce a process of evolution that was likely to produce intelligent life. And, and, and right. uh, my, you know, that's conceivable, I think. Do you agree that it's at least conceivable? Let me qualify that agreement again. Yeah, conceivable, sure. Yeah, because as I said, conceivability is even lower than logical necessity. So lo logical coherence. So sure, everything is conceivable pretty much. As, as long as we're talking about it, it means that it's conceivable. If, 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 I, if you're saying something to me and I, I think I understand what you're saying, that means it's conceivable. However, <laughs> that said. Thanks for that compliment. <laughs> well, it was a backhanded compliment. No, but that seriously, that, that said, however, the, the, the issue that I have is actually with Lee Smolin's uh, cosmological natural selection. In fact, I actually wrote a separate rebuttal to, to him. And at some point, we were supposed to have a dialogue together about it, and then it, it didn't happen. Hmm. Um, I would grant you this uh, from, from the, the, the argument you just made. is like, yes, if we, if we knew of a meta process, so to speak, uh, right, that itself generated natural selection, then yes, uh, then you don't be getting somewhere, right? Uh, my objection, of course, is that at least, at least at the moment, as far as I know, there is no such thing as, as that kind of meta process. Now, the, the only candidate, again, I agree with you, that I know of at least, is uh, Smolin's uh, cosmological natural selection. The problem is that I wish he hadn't used that term because I think he's uh, under some kind of misconception, which is not necessarily a fault for a physicist, about what natural selection actually is and how it works. Because when he says that natural selection would favor universes with a certain characteristic or another, he's forgetting a couple of things. There are two crucial elements that are necessary for natural selection to, to uh, actually work. One is an inheritance system. And if there is no inheritance system, and as far as we know, there is no inheritance system in what he's talking about. Uh, I mean, he does speculate uh, that, uh, that the laws of nature are somehow inherited and they can be mutated you know, one way mm -hmm. or another into a second mm -hmm. universe. But that's entirely conjecture. I mean, there's no reason at all to believe that that is the case, as opposed to real natural selection, where we do know quite a bit about mm -hmm. the genetic inheritance system. The other one is natural selection also requires competition. I mean, it happens because there is competition for limited resources. And it's not clear to me at all what the limited resources would be in the case of budding universes. I mean, where, where, where are these resources? What is it that limits the growth of these universes? It seems to me, from the little I understand about the physics, that a budding universe just creates its own space. Mm -hmm. There is no limitation of resources. So failing a reasonable answer to both, not just one, but both of these, I think that uh, Smolin's mechanism of, of uh, cosmic natural selection is incoherent from the point of view of, the, of a biologist. I understand where, why he's doing that. And that is, as you know, he's really 
getting um, up against a, a real problem, which is the problem of fine tuning of the of the laws of nature and the constants of nature, right? Um, which is a problem that other people have uh, come up with different solutions. The multiverse uh, is another solution. He doesn't like that, and I think he's right in not liking that solution. Mm-hmm. Because that kind of solution basically postulates, uh, you know, which is popular in, among some cosmologists like Shankaro. Uh, the, the multiverse basically says, look, all possible universes exist. And so there's, there's no, no problem to uh, figure out why is it that a tiny fraction of those universes have the precise combination of, you know, uh, laws of nature and, and natural constants that allow life to evolve, et cetera, et cetera. Fine. The problem is there is no empirical evidence whatsoever about the existence of multiple universes. Mm-hmm. And, and Smalling is right in, in criticizing the multiverse hypothesis on that ground. Unfortunately, he falls into the same kind of problem because there is no evidence whatsoever of budding universes, uh, cosmic natural selection and things like that. Quite frankly, it seems to me that the problem of fine tuning is a problem, and and we need to face the fact that 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 really might be one of those problems that you were mentioning earlier that we might, might not be smart enough to figure out. And as you know, I'm not tempted for even a second to to go for the theological answer and say, well, the universe is designed this way because there is a creator God. That's that that's another non-starter for very similar reasons. It's like okay, but I have no idea. That's just all three of those, as far as I can tell. Um, are meaning the theological answer, the, the multiverse and and uh, and Smolin's natural cosmological selection. All three are, are ad hoc answers made up in order to uh, arrive at some kind of, of of solutions for this problem of of uh, uh, fine tuning. Which brings me to actually the the point at the end, the very end of your article in New York Times, where I completely agree with you. If I remember correctly, I reread it recently, so I should remember correctly that um, you made. Um, you said basically that uh, uh, things, notions like the, the simulation hypothesis, you know, things like that, are essentially the secular equivalent of the religious belief that there is a creator God, right? And I completely agree. It's they are in fact the same exact thing. Uh, just like in my mind, at least, the notion of uploading consciousness is the secular equivalent of the rapture. You know, we we want immortality. We want meaning. We want this. You know, some some kind of broader thing that makes sense of what we are. And they are misguided for the same reason as the theological ones. That's what I would want to say. Mm-hmm. I think that as secular people, we should just stay away from that and say, look, there. are we, we don't have an answer. We, we don't know. We have no idea why this, this, this stuff is out there. At the moment, either it is not possible in, general, in, in, you know, in principle for human beings to come up with those answers, or no equivalent of Einstein, Galileo, or Darwin as yet born, being born, that can tackle those kind of answers. And so it's like, I think it's a matter of humility. And at some point, you can you know, say, okay. We, we really have no idea. We can speculate over a glass of wine, especially. I love mm-hmm. to speculate about these things. But let's not take those things, those speculations, as actual, reasonable, grounded hypotheses that we can pursue in any, in any way. They, they are what they are. They're just speculations. Yeah, my main point with the simulation thing is it's just kind of ironic that there are people who consider themselves like highly secular and would laugh at religious people and then say, hey, the simulation thing is interesting. And it's like, wait, that's 
<laughs> That's just deism. That is exactly. that is a theology. Okay. Exactly. Um, anyway, exactly. the, the um, l- let me quickly. Uh, you know, we should we should probably wrap up before too long. Let me, let me uh, uh, touch on several things you brought up. Go- going back to your, you know, I said, well, uh, maybe if you if if your hypothesis were that one of the one of the goals of evo- one of the purposes of evolution was to create intelligent life. Which then might go on to create things that are also part of the larger purpose. But for starters, you'd want to be able to argue that uh, that uh, the evolution of intelligent life was likely, and certainly any evidence you could deduce or persuasive argument you could deduce to that effect would work in favor of your hypothesis in some sense. And you said, uh, you said, uh, well, you said a couple of things. Um, I mean, first of all, you said. Look, there's a lot of not very smart, not very complex things like bacteria. They're doing just fine. Well, that's true. But remember, uh, in this scenario, um, the, the, the goal would just be to produce at least one intelligent species. You only need one in this scenario, right? So, so the question wouldn't be, uh, do all lineages get inevitably more complex? You know, the answer to that is no. I mean, all lineages have gotten more complex. Bacteria are more complex than some of their ancestors, but, but that, that's not, uh, the, the, the point or the question. I, I think, I think in, in the, uh, in the scenario where intelligent life is a purpose, all you, all you want to be able to show is that there's a strong tendency for kind of the outer envelope of complexity and intelligence in the ecosystem to rise. In other words, if you ask after 10 million years of evolution, uh, what's the most complex form of life on the planet? Okay, it's this, it's this species. Then you come back in a hundred million years and then in a billion years and keep asking the same question. If it is the case that the most complex and or most intelligent species you know, each time is more complex and intelligent than it was last time you asked that question, then you could say there is a tendency for the outer envelope of complexity and intelligence to rise, sure. which I think there manifestly is. Now, sure. now you you were kind of dismissive of this fact by saying, um, well, of course, complexity grows. Uh, it, it, things can't get can't can't get into negative complexity, right? Things can right. only get, you know. I, in other words, uh, you know, the baseline once organic, once you once you start off with whatever some simple strand of DNA, well, can't get much less complex. The only place to go is upward. That's an argument made by Stephen Gould um, for for comparable uh, purposes. I think to be dismissive of uh, uh, purposive scenarios of teleological scenarios. Um, and I address that. In, there's a chapter in my book, Non-Zero, called Why is Life So Complex? And, and I make a couple of points. I mean, first of all, I would say, even if that's the only reason life gets more complex, uh, that would be consistent with the purpose scenario. I mean, maybe this alien sat down and said, hey, you know, you realize if you just start natural selection off, things will inevitably get more complex because ha- complexity has to head upward or, or something, whatever. That could be part of a purpose. But what I want to add is that is clearly not the only reason things have gotten more complex and more. No, I agree. Uh, Okay, so there are, and Gould Gould neglects this. I mean, you're very complimentary of his book, Full House. I don't understand why, because what he did in that, in that argument is, is very characteristic of Gould, which is, uh, I mean, I, I, I don't want to speak ill of the dead, but I think he's been dead long (laughs) enough to say, um, 
uh, you know, he, well, whatever. Anyway, he did not. Yeah. He no, didn't I do a good job addressing that's... the question because, look, obviously, you have arms races. Exactly. You have right. arms races between right. species so right. that the predator gets more complex, the prey right. gets more complex, and so on. You have arms races within species. The cleverer right. members do a better job of reproducing, so right. the average level of intelligence within the species gets higher. Correct. There's a lot, and there are so other this reasons. Is all What's but, that? But that is all correct. I completely right. agree. In fact, when you were talking, I was immediately, I was thinking, yeah, but there are arms races. Uh, that's, that's the second major, uh, reason why we get more and more complex and in certain branches of the life, uh, of the tree of life, more intelligent, uh, beings. Not all of them, right? I mean, plants don't get more intelligent, but they do get more complex. Um, also as a result of, of, well, uh, I mean, arms races. What, uh, so, what do we know? I mean, I mean, <laughs> no, let's not get there. Uh, okay. So what, 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 no, but what I'm going to say is they develop great behavioral complexity sometimes. And that's what we associate. That is the outward manifestation of what we think of as intelligence in a way, but go ahead. Right. But let, without getting, yes. But then again, we, we, have, we will have to make a distinction between intelligence and then intelligence with the, with, with the scare quotes because. Yeah, if, I, I'm, if, I'm if, happy to combine right, the, the yeah, discussion to yeah. animals. So yeah. let's talk to animals, about animals. Absolutely. There is armed race. Now, this is not about Gould, but if we wanted to be charitable to Gould, he certainly knew about arms races. Uh, so the, that's, the, that's actually not being charitable about him because it raises the question <laughs> of why he did not mention them. Because his because his his uh, his focus in that particular book, Full House, was about stochastic processes. But but regardless, forget Gould for a minute. The fact is, I think we can agree that that two major sources of explanation of increasing complexity and intelligence are random walks, as you said before, you can't get any simpler than a certain level. Right. And especially once, especially after a certain amount of uh, period of, of, of evolution in the early Earth, uh, the arms races. And that's one of the reasons probably why we see bursts of increasing complexity. Like, uh, you know, like the, the, the origin of the first multicellular organism, for instance, was a burst uh, of, of complexity uh, all of a sudden. You know, geologically speaking, all of a sudden, not, not literally from one day to another. Uh, the origin of, of metazoans, you know, of what we call animals, uh, was another burst. Suddenly we have all these, these variety of forms and so on and so forth. So now you can say, well, those two things are compatible with the, with the speculation, with the notion that an intelligent life, you know, group of extraterrestrials started all this as a, as a, as an experiment. Sure, it's compatible. But as Simone de Laplace famously said to Napoleon, we don't need that hypothesis, right? It's, it's an extra thing that we're going to add there. Um, all we need in terms of explaining the actual degree of complexity on Earth is a combination of random walks and, uh, you know, initial study conditions, random walks, and especially uh, the arms race, the, 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 right. the, the repeated arms race. We don't need the extraterrestrials. Now, if we had any positive evidence that there were extraterrestrials out there that yeah. did this thing, then it would be a completely different kind of discussion. No, right? no, no I, I'm making a slightly different um, argument. You're right that the extraterrestrials, if they if they started natural selection, would exist at just a different level of explanation. This is a level of explanation. It, it's yeah. like it's like saying, uh, you know. I understand everything about the way my car works. I'm an expert. I understand the whole system. And I don't need to know who designed the car. Now, in that case, there is an answer to the question. 
yeah. who designed the car. But I don't need to know. As you said, you don't need that hypothesis for certain purposes. Now, as I said earlier, I think there's some questions that are so interesting. Consciousness, free will, uh, is there a larger purpose? They're just so interesting to people. I'm personally willing to tackle them, even though I don't think they will ever be scientifically resolved. Having said that, I would say that uh, what the point I'm making here uh, is uh, it, it is uh, there is kind of a form of scientific argumentation I'm trying to invoke, which is this: if your hypothesis is natural selection's purpose was to create intelligent life, then it seems to me the next level of inquiry would be to say, well, let's, uh, was it, is natural selection by, just by virtue of its nature, likely to create intelligent life? Because if it's not likely, then I think that's bad for your hypothesis that that's its purpose. If it took a series of incredibly lucky accidents on this particular planet for intelligent life to evolve, but natural selection doesn't really have any kind of inherent tendency to move toward intelligence, then that's actually bad for your hypothesis sure. that evolution has a larger purpose. Now, to the extent that you can invoke reasons to believe that actually it was pretty likely there's some pretty stubborn tendencies favoring the evolution of intelligence, then so much the better for your hypothesis. So I see this this question of like, well, is it just the random walk or, oh, are there arms races and so on? as having at least some some kind of place in an argument about whether evolution has a purpose. Now, it's far from determinative. Like I said, I don't yeah. think you'll ever resolve the question scientifically. But, you know, if somebody like me says, I think maybe the purpose of natural selection is to create intelligent life, the first thing you should say is, uh, well, show me that it was likely to happen. Show me that it's actually a property of natural selection in and of itself to tend in these directions. I think you can make those arguments. No, but we, we come to full circle. And say, I understand what you're saying, but we'll come, in a sense, we'll come full circle when, when we're saying, so even let me grant you that uh, somehow we can figure out because we, we discovered different biospheres throughout the galaxy and we find out mm -hmm. that, hey, guess what? Every time the natural selection starts working, it inevitably creates intelligence, mm -hmm. right? It needs intelligence. That tells me nothing about purpose because for, by the same token, you can say any natural physical system uh, will tend to, if left, left to its own devices, will tend to increase entropy. That doesn't mean that high entropy is the purpose of that system. It just means that that's what happens in physical mean systems. It, it doesn't right. mean it, right. uh, but it does uh, – it is more consistent with the hypothesis than would be the case if you could show that natural selection – doesn't tend to move toward intelligence, and it, it was just an incredible series of flukes. Remember, this is Gould's argument. He first yeah. made it in the book the, on the Burgess Shale, and I and, and and I gave him a scathing. I wrote a scathing review of that in the New Republic because again, it was an incredibly shoddy argument. He he was arguing that our species for our species um, to evolve took an incredibly series uh, of lucky breaks. Well, of course it did. But that's not the question. The question is, how likely was it that one intelligent species would eventually emerge? Of course, our species could have been uh, wiped out. I mean, uh, the Neanderthals seem to have been largely wiped out, although we, we now realize um, that we have some of their DNA. But um, 
you know, on the other hand, if they were wiped out by us, then, you know, sure. then, if, then had we not been around, maybe they would have become the intelligent species. Fine. My, 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 um, but let's set aside Gould for a minute, because, again, I'm not defending Gould in particular. I'm, we're trying to make a, a more general argument here. Uh, I, I still don't think that the, the, um, that your conclusion about natural selection follows. It doesn't follow, no. Or even is actually, uh, a, a, a reasonable way to think about it when you compare it with, with the counterexample of entropy. So would you say, for instance, that, um, the, the, if I understand your reasoning correctly, you would be saying essentially something analogous to the purpose of the second principle thermodynamics is to increase entropy. That would seem oh, no, like no, a, I, would, I, would, I, no, 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 I would never say that. Well, but, you, <laughs> but you're saying something equivalent. You're saying something. You're saying the purpose. You're thinking that the purpose of natural selection is to to yield complexity, right? I, I'm saying it's a possibility that that we should take more seriously. Right, but what is the difference? I haven't given the two all cases? my reason. I haven't given all my reasons for thinking it should be taken seriously. Fair but but it is, and I, I'm just saying. Like I think you'd agree. Like if I said I think the purpose of evolution was to create intelligence. And you say, wait a second, I've got bad news for you. We have a way of simulating natural selection in these computers. We're starting with natural selection. And look, you can see in, ni- in, all, in all of these simulations, it doesn't create intelligence. So it actually wasn't likely. It was a fluke. You, I think you would say, so your hypothesis of purpose looks worse now, deserves less credence now that I've shown you how unlikely the evolution I'm, of intelligence was than it did before. Well, by the same token, if I could show you that actually intelligence was a likely product of natural selection, my hypothesis would, relatively speaking, look better, deserve more credence, than, no, than if we had concluded that evol- intelligence wasn't likely. Look, it's a simple point I'm making, but... Right, no, no, I understand, but I, but I think that actually whether natural selection always... Uh, leads to intelligence or not is actually irrelevant. I don't think it helps you at all. For the same reasons, uh, again, that we have physical processes that always invariably lead to a particular outcome, and nobody would ever think about uh, talking of those processes in terms of purpose. You're talking about physical laws? Yeah. Second principle I just, thermodynamics. I just, that, I just don't consider that an, a, an analogy. Why not? Natural selection is a physical process, right? I mean, it's, it's, not, a law, it's not a law of physics. It's not a law of physics. Well, some biologists might actually disagree. It's not a law of physics, but it is a natural process that it, works in similar ways. It's a product ways. of physical processes, including physical laws. But what are physical laws, then, I have to say? I mean, physical <laughs> laws are just, you know, are just our way to conceptualize empirical generalizations, right? So we know that entropy in open systems increases no matter what over time. That's and we call that the second law of thermodynamics. We know that okay. uh, but here here's here's the difference. If you say was the purpose of the second law of thermodynamics uh, to create entropy. Right. It's not like it is part of the definition of the second law of thermodynamics that it creates entropy. It is not part of the definition of natural selection that it produces intelligence. You can imagine a process of genetic replication with uh, random mutation that just never creates anything as smart as a human being, no matter how long you give it. That's what Gould thought was the case. Um, 
Uh, I'm not so sure that, right. that it's so, part of the definition of, of, the, of the second law that it creates entropy. I mean, that's, that's an empirical finding, that entro- entropy increases in the universe is an no, empirical finding. No, that's what finding. the second law says. Yeah, I know, but it's a description of an empirical finding. That's what I'm saying. Therefore, uh, one can make the same, the same reasoning in terms of natural selection. If you discovered that natural selection invariably leads to intelligence, then one would say, okay, well, then natural selection is that process that, given certain conditions, will lead to intelligence. If I define it that way, but that's not the definition of natural selection. It's just genetic. It's just the variation. It's just the the replication of these inherited traits with some variation. That's what natural selection is. And it's not inherent in that definition of it that it produced things as smart as us. Yet it did, which is kind of amazing. I think it's an interesting question. Did that require a series of bizarre flukes? Or is it the case that if you unleash it on a planet and give it 5 billion years and the planet doesn't get hit by an asteroid or something, there's a pretty good chance that you'll get intelligence. To me, that's an interesting question. It but, is but, definitely an interesting question. But it's very different from the second law of thermodynamics, which literally cannot help but produce entropy. Yeah, but it's uh, the reason I, what I'm saying is the reason I brought up, brought up the, the analogy is because the only the only reason currently those two things is diff- are different is because we don't know what is the necessary outcome of the natural selective process, right? We don't know because we only have one biosphere, as we agreed before. But, right. Right. So it's an it's an open empirical question. The physicists in this sense are ahead of the biologists. The physics, the reason why natural selection is not a law of nature is because so far as we know, it only happened on one planet. Right now. However, it could have happened uh, everywhere in the universe as far as we know. We we have no idea. Right. And so shouldn't in fact happen if, if we discover the natural selection happens in every everywhere there are the conditions that are that are that generate life. And should we discover that every time that it happens, it leads to complexity or it leads to intelligence or to both, then at that point you start elevating natural selection to the level of natural law. Okay, but there even though we only have one ecosystem to observe, there's still other questions you can ask beyond the ones we've asked, and we can't, you know sure. we've been talking a long time, but I I would just say an example is the multiple independent invention of the th- uh, uh, of the same thing, like like if you said were wings was winged flight likely to evolve by natural selection? Well, if it had only evolved once, you might say maybe not, but we know it's involved multi- it's evolved multiple right. times. Multicellular sure. life evolved independently multiple times. Okay. This really complicated kind of eyeball we have evolved independently in octopuses and so on. To the, that's another kind of question you can ask about how likely, uh, properties were. So are there a number of different lineages in which, uh, you can chart a growth of intelligence? I think there are and so on. You, You can, you know, so there are questions you can ask even within sure. an ecosystem that are relevant sure. to, that are relevant sure. to the larger and, question. And multiple evolution of the same traits under similar conditions is a well-established phenomenon. I mean, right. there, there, you know, there's, there's no question about it. But again, why, why on earth would we need to bring in the word purpose in there? All we need you, to say is the natural selection, which is a process we understand fairly well, under certain conditions lead to the evolution and under certain constraints. Because, for instance, one of the best examples of what you're talking about, the the, the uh, parallel evolution, as it's called, of the same kind of structure, is right. the evolution of highly fusiform bodies in animals that swim fast, right? 
right? You know, we got the dolphins that came from mammals. We got fish, different kinds of fish, you know, cartilaginous fish, bony fish, and so on and so forth. All of those evolved these, these, and in fact, even some invertebrates evolved these, these very fusiform bodies. Now one can say, well, isn't that strange? And the answer there is, well, no, it's not strange. It's a result of natural selection that creates the, you know, the, the variety and the competition, et cetera. And the fact that all these animals had the same problem to solve. I need to move fast in, in, in a, uh, uh right. medium like water that has certain mechanical, uh, characteristics and so on and so forth. And it turns out that in, from an engineering perspective, so to speak, mm-hmm. and I'm using the word in quotation marks here, that's one of the best solutions. Um, and so it evolved several times, but that is not surprising. I mean, all of that means no, it's is, not. that's my right? point. It follows from the logic of natural selection that you're likely to get certain things, yeah. including intelligence. What is intelligence? It's behavioral sure. flexibility. And, sure. and, and beha- you can see why behavioral flexibility is so useful in evolution. So intelligence, Absolutely. you know, in the sense at least of more and more intelligence is a likely product of natural selection. Again, and I'm not, and you say, well, you don't have to, uh, I, why I would you agree. invoke purpose? You don't know, you don't have to invoke purpose. Uh, but, but, but my point is, if you start off with a hypothesis of purpose, there are challenges you can subject that hypothesis to. You can say, but wait a second. Uh, maybe multicellular life wasn't likely to evolve. Well, you can actually show that's wrong. Uh, or at least, you know, arguably wrong, given the number of times it evolved. Uh, and, and so on. So, so w- when it turns out that these things have evolved independently, things like behavioral flexibility, which is kind of tantamount to intelligence itself, that is, whether you want to think of it as something that corroborates the hypothesis of purpose or just a challenge that the hypothesis has survived, I'm just saying it's relevant to the question of purpose. Yeah, and I, th- and I think that is that really boils down to 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 uh, where the, our disagreement is. I don't actually think that those those observations help the hypothesis at all, for the simple reason that yes, those are things that are predicted by the hypothesis. You're absolutely right. If you start with the with the right. notion that, look, my hypothesis predicts that if natural selection has purpose, it should produce intelligence okay. or complexity. Right. Right. Great. Fine. Uh, then, then if you discover that, in fact, natural selection does not produce intelligence or complexity on a regular basis, then the hypothesis is in trouble. However, okay. right. However, mm. the problem is that natural selection without purpose also can be thought of as producing intelligence and complexity. And therefore, the, we're still at the same problem where adding the purpose on top of it without additional, you know, external evidence, like, you know, an intelligent race of extraterrestrials, um, doesn't really help. Basically, what you have is what philosophers call an underdetermination of the, of the, of the theory by the data. The data cannot discriminate between natural selection as a, as a simple, as the process as we understand today, and natural selection with purpose. Okay, first of all, I want to really dwell on something you said. The hypothesis of purpose makes predictions, they can be tested, uh, it can pass these tests or fail, and you agree that in the couple of cases I've mentioned, it passes the test. I mean, I'd be willing to stop here. I'm delighted to hear you put it that way because I agree that's the way to put it. Now, when you say, um, but we don't need the hypothesis of purpose, uh, for many reasons we don't. Again, it's kind of like figuring out what consciousness is. We don't need to do it. But, um, but I would say that if the question is, how did natural selection get started? Where did natural selection 
come from? If you're talking about that question, you don't have an answer to that question. So well, neither do you. I mean, well, no, just, but, just but purpose, steam- purpose would be a category of answers, right? If, if there's purpose, then you would say, well, then either like an intelligent being created it or a process of metanatural selection created it. Um, but then, but then again, we're, we're going. Back, I'm going back to my analogy with physics. We don't have an answer to the question of why the, the second principle of thermodynamic works. There's no, no, we don't have an that. answer. But it's well, right. that's a different uh, uh, question. That's I mean, I, I would say go back to the question of fine question. tuning, the so-called fine tuning. Like if the physical right. constants were just a little different, then the universe would collapse yeah, or something. Right. And lo and behold, the universe seems to have almost been tailor made for stability or something. Um, uh, you know, we don't know what the answer is to that question. No. But as you said, there are several hypotheses. I think they're worth entertaining. We don't know. Yeah. And again, that that brings that bring brings and boils you down to another difference that I think that, that those hypotheses are are worth entertaining as a conversational thing, as like the two of us are, are doing. Yeah. I don't think, however, lots of people want to raise them to the level of scientific hypotheses and they're not because – they, they, there is no way at, that we can conceive at the moment, at least, to actually bring empirical evidence, uh, on, you know, to bear on those hypotheses, in which case they're just speculation. And I would like to keep a distinction between science and speculation. That's, that's basically one okay, of the Okay, but, but you agree reasons. that, that this particular speculative hypothesis is subject to at least some of the kind of testing scientific hypotheses are subject to. Yeah, but but the thing is, okay, you, you gotta seem go, to think, gotta go, well, gotta well, stop you. At, yeah, didn't hear, didn't, <laughs> didn't hear the butt. Sorry, gotta run. <laughs> yeah, we should probably leave it there. No, no, go ahead, go ahead and finish, and then we will. No, no. All I, all I was saying is um, is that um, there are certain just because a hypothesis predicts certain things that could potentially be um, falsified by the data. Right. That doesn't really mean that we make made a lot of progress because unfortunately the scenario we see is not the one that will falsify the hypothesis. Right. So as we said a minute ago, uh, the problem is that the hypothesis and natural selection is a, it's a, it's a natural process period or the hypothesis that natural selection requires some kind of purpose or embeds some kind of purpose. Those are the two hypotheses, right? And the problem is that those hypotheses seem to be making at the moment exactly the same prediction. Well, oh, whoa, 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 Complexity whoa, whoa. evolves and, and, and intelligence evolves. I, I want to emphasize that if there's anything I want to drive home here, it's that those are not competing hypotheses. If the hypothesis of purpose turns out to be true, natural selection will still be the explanation of how evolution works. I wouldn't expect anything different about evolution uh, beyond the kind of basic Darwinian mechanics as a result of the uh, – if the hypothesis of purpose – that's really funda- a fundamental thing to understand. No, I, I, They're I not, understand that. That's how I started out. That's how I started right, out. I understand that part. You know, people but say, wait, I thought hypothesis. you were Darwinian. But they're still different. Well, they're hypotheses, different, right? but they're compatible. That's my point. Yeah, and my point is they're not discernible. That that the, the compatibility is so high that you cannot actually tell. In which case, what we, what you're left with is a simple case of Occam's razor. You're left with hypothesis number one that says one thing, and then hypothesis number two that says the same thing plus another thing. And since they have exactly the same explanatory power, why the hell would you want to go to one thing plus another? 
That's that's basically no, but, but the, again, the objection. The, there's a second sense in which they're not competing hypotheses, okay? I mean, as I said, they're, they're not competing in the sense that they're compatible, but they're not trying to explain the same thing. Purpose, if it turns out to be true, would explain how natural selection got started on the planet. That's a different question sure. from why animals, you know, how they evolve the properties they have. So it's not like these two, they're not competing hypotheses. But then if they're not competing hypotheses, how would you tell them apart? Right? <laughs> so so you're, you're trying to answer... Is, again... You're trying to answer a meta question. You don't, you don't, you, you, what? You're trying to answer a meta question. How did natural selection get started? Mm -hmm. is, that what you're, is that where we're going at this point? Uh, well, if the hypothesis of purpose is true, that tells you at least some, that there was something before before it that would shed light on how it came to be on this planet. Yes. Right. Right. Well, the current view, as far as I can tell, among evolutionary biologists, on the other hand, and actually computational scientists these days, is that natural selection simply is a, essentially a law of nature, although nobody calls it that. But it's a law of nature that is triggered by certain conditions. So once you have certain certain physical or in fact, uh, not even physical systems because it works inside right. computers as well, right? So once you have certain, uh, certain systems that have certain characteristics, such mm. as reproduction, a limited amount of resources, and a, a, a system of inheritance, then natural selection is what, what comes into, what describes the behavior of those systems. And therefore, in a sense, there is no there's no really question of where does natural selection come from. That's what it is. Natural selection is what happens when these sure. systems come into existence, sure. right? Yeah. But, but, but it has to start with this self-replicating information. And so far as we know, that doesn't exist on any other planet. So it's kind of interesting. How did it come to be here? Yeah, that, absolutely. But, but, but when you say so far as we know it doesn't exist on other planets, that's literally because we haven't been to other planets. We, we don't know whether they exist or not. It's very oh. possible that we get to Titan, we've, we, we discover life there or Mars and we discover life there and we find out, oh, that's how it comes about. Yeah, my point is just that I wouldn't take it for granted. The seeds of natural selection, I mean, especially given the second law of thermodynamics in a way, uh, are not to be kind of taken uh, for granted, you know. Yeah. Okay. But, I, I, we, we, you know, you're, you're um, I think in, in New York, the, the competition for bandwidth, speaking of competition for resources, is uh, starting <laughs> to kick high. in because you, been, you've been yeah. freezing up a little. So maybe we should yeah. uh, call it a day. Uh, the, um, call it a night, co yes. <laughs> covered a lot of ground. Uh, thank you. Uh, let, let me quickly say, if people want to see the closest thing I've done to an actual written argument that there is evidence of purpose, I would first go to that New York Times piece, uh, Could Evolution Have a Higher Purpose, by me. And then near the bottom, there's a link to a piece that's actually on the Meaning of Life.tv site that I wrote. That That's the uh, longer version of this. But anyway, thank you for indulging me, Massimo. Um, oh, and likewise. This, this was a lot of fun. It was fun. Where where can people find you on Twitter and stuff? They can find me at uh, uh, M Pilucci, M P I G L I U C C I, and then all my writings, podcasts, uh, including these videos and everything, can be found at massimopilucci.com. Okay, 
Great. And uh, are there other books you want to you want to mention besides How to Be a Stoic? Although that's uh, certainly recommended for people who want to. Thank you. Want to well, sure. endure the, the current era of history? Right. I know. Right. You, you can't you can't believe how many people, how many uh, you know, requests for interviews on stoicism I got during the pandemic. Um, yes, there is a new book that just came out recently. It's called The Field Guide to a Happy Life, and it is about stoicism. It is, however, about bringing up Stoicism to date to the 21st century, because as you know, Stoicism, you know, started out 23, 24 centuries ago. And there are a few things here and there that we discovered, both in terms of science and in terms of philosophy that, uh, that uh, I think required a little bit of an update. So just in the way in which people write about, you know, modern Buddhism as opposed to the early uh, variation, then, then in a field guide to happy life, I present the modern version of Stoicism for the 21st century. Hey, speaking of which, a mutual plug, if people want to search for our names on YouTube and the words Buddhism and Stoicism, we had a long conversation about the parallels and contrasts, yeah. which... Um, yeah, that was fun as well. That was I keep fun. using it with my students, yeah. Yeah. So I hope we'll have a chance to come back and either continue this conversation or, or figure out something else to argue about. Absolutely. All right. Thanks, and one Massimo. of these days on, on an actual, you know, in person on a gla- with a glass of wine would be nice. Well, the, the, the scientists tell us that that will be possible, possibly within six to eight months. Yeah. So let's hope. To do safely. All right. I look forward Stay to safe. it. Stay safe. Okay. Take care.